Our Father, we are confronted with this amazing text this morning. These words of your Apostle Paul, who, writing from prison, wrote to encourage the church. And his words continue to encourage us this morning, all these many centuries later. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us through these words and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, we've come to the end of our brief journey through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I can think of almost no better text for our times than what we have here in Philippians chapter 4. You hear the words of verse 7, the words that we've just heard, which say, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. The peace of God. And then we, we go to a couple verses after that into verse 9, and we hear the words of verse 9, which say, And the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. So on the one hand, you have the peace of God, and on the other hand, you have the God of peace. And together, these come together in the words of Paul to show us exactly what it is we are so desperately in need of in our lives today. In our lives today, right? In what has probably been the strangest year of our lifetimes, 2020, no matter how long you've lived, this is probably one of the strangest years of your lifetime, 2020. A year of pandemic, a year of social and political unrest, a year of financial hardship for many, a year of uncertainty and anxiety and confusion. In all this, this stuff that we have encou we've encountered in this year, in this kind of year, do you hear the quiet, calm, and collective whisper? of this text the peace of god which surpasses all understanding will keep you the god of peace will be with you even in 2020 even in the midst of pandemic and unrest and division and hardship and confusion and anxiety and uncertainty the god of peace will be with you but these words of Paul are not just some kind of trite or sentimental kind of well-wishing. Rather, his words here are really rooted deeply in a much larger context, and especially in the context of Paul's own life, right? Paul's own life, where he has suffered immensely for the sake of the gospel, where even as he's writing this, this letter, he is writing this letter from prison, he has suffered for the, the ministry. He is even possibly here awaiting his own death. He's unsure if he's going to live or if he's going to die. And yet in all of this, in all of the hardship that Paul has faced, in the, the chains that he describes in chapter 1 of this letter, he still has this, this hope. He still knows the God of peace even in all the things that he has faced, even in all the things that are, he, he's encountering in his life, he still finds rest in the peace of God. The God of peace will be with you, he says. You see, like a good soldier, Paul has not abandoned his post. 
He is still at his post. He is still here standing firm. Again, despite everything that has happened to him, he, he's writing to this church at Philippi. And you remember, it's a Roman colony. It is a city that is filled with Roman soldiers. And he's encouraging this church in this city to stand firm as well to not abandon their post, to be just like he has been in standing firm. He writes to encourage them to stand firm just like he is standing firm, like a good soldier standing at his post, obeying the call of Christ. And he says to these people, these, this church in Philippi, that if they stand firm, they will find peace. He says that in holding steady, in staying the course, in not giving up, they will find peace. They will be comforted by the God of peace. And we can as well. We're going to explore that a little bit this morning. This peace of God, even in the midst of these trials, even in the midst of this hardship, the peace of God coming to us from the God of peace. If you've been following along with us in this series, you know that we've been tracking through this letter basically chapter by chapter. We started all the way back in chapter 1 and then went basically chapter to chapter looking at how Paul has been encouraging this church to be a particular kind of church, a cruciform church, a church that is in the shape of the cross. That is to say, a church that carries the cross of Christ. And it is a community that is shaped by the cross that it carries. It is carrying this cross of Christ, following in the way of the cross. And yet, it is also being shaped by that cross that it carries. And so far, we have seen that this is a church that submits to the will of Christ. As Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, way back in chapter 1. And so he has submitted his will entirely to the will of Christ, and he invites the church to submit their will to the will of Christ. This is also a church that imitates the humility of Christ. As Paul says to the church, let the same mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself and humbled himself, becoming one of us. So this is a church that imitates the humility of Christ. And it is also, as we saw last week, a church that puts all of its hope in Christ. That's a church that does not rely on its own merit or its own achievements or its own accomplishments, but it is a church that puts all its hope in, in Christ and Christ alone, in the merits of Christ and Christ alone. And now this morning, we see this final thing, that this is a church that also stands firm in the peace of Christ. It's a church that stands firm in the peace of Christ, submitting to the will of Christ, imitating the humility of Christ, and uh, putting all its hope in Christ, and now also standing firm in the peace of Christ. And one of the things that we'll also see this morning is how all the things that we've already seen in the series, submitting to the will, imitating the humility, putting all the hope in Christ, all of those things come together and they create this peace of Christ. 
And so this morning, the cruciform church is a church that stands firm in the peace of Christ. And we see this in a number of different ways. First of all, we see it in the Apostle Paul himself. In his own life, his own life of suffering and hardship, his obedience to the gospel of Christ, this call of God, he has followed Christ fully. And even while he is suffering and being persecuted and possibly even awaiting his own death, he still has this peace of Christ. He's standing firm in in Christ's peace. But we also see this, this kind of peace in Christ himself, don't we? As we look back to the Gospels, the end of the Gospels, as Christ is making his way to the cross. And he is hanging there on the cross. He gives his life for us on the cross. On the cross, Christ himself radiates this kind of perfect peace. Despite all the things that are happening to him, everything that is taking place at the cross, he's radiating this perfect peace. You notice at the cross, Christ cries out to his father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You can only make that kind of prayer if you have peace, can't you? The peace with God, the peace with others. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Again, recognizing this kind of peace that Christ has with his father, the contentment of the situation. He radiates this kind of perfect peace. At the cross, Christ has this incredible peace, and the church that is shaped by that cross can have this kind of peace as well, the kind of peace that comes from Christ, the crucified Christ. See, in a world that is shaken by fear, in a world that is overwhelmed by such devastating loss, and we have seen such loss in this year, haven't we? A quarter of a million people have died in our country alone because of this virus. In a world that is overwhelmed by such devastating loss and shattered by such uncertainty and confusion and grief, the people of God can still stand firm in the peace of Christ. The people of God can still stand firm in the peace of Christ. Because our God is a God of peace. Even in such times as we are facing, even in all the things that you as individuals face, God is still a God of peace. When the church even comes to such unprecedented crisis, we can still stand firm in peace because our God is a God of peace and we have the peace of Christ. As we get into this text this morning, we find it is packaged in three major sections, interrelated sections. They go hand in hand. They, they kind of filter into each other and they're woven together by a common thread. And we see the first section in verses two and three which deals with a kind of personal relational matter that's happening in in the context of the Philippian church, some kind of interrelational personal matter that is happening between two members of the congregation at Philippi. And so Paul says in those verses, agree in the Lord. Basically, agree in the Lord. Have the same mind in the Lord. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. 
The second section is in verses 4 through 7, where Paul here gives us some practical instructions that really pave the way for us to receive the peace that comes from God, this peace of Christ. And so notably in those verses, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. And then the final section is in verses 8 and 9, which describe how our thoughts can make room for the God of peace to come into our lives. How the manner of our thinking can make room for the God of peace to come into our lives. And so Paul basically in those verses is saying, set your minds on the things of the Lord. Your minds on the things of the Lord. And you notice here a a kind of a pattern how he says, agree in the Lord, have the same mind in the Lord. And then he says, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, basically, set your minds on the things of the Lord. And one of the interesting things in all three of these sections is how they all go back to verse 1. They all filter back to verse 1. They go back to it and they flow from it. Everything we see in verses 2 through 9 is anchored in that very first verse, which says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And you hear it again, that same pattern, in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. And you notice also the intimacy of Paul's writing here, how he addresses them as my brothers and sisters. He says, whom I love and long for. (laughs) He has this desire to be with these people. He loves these people. He, He calls them his joy and his crown. What a great pastor Paul is, isn't he? How he celebrates every time his church is being faithful. How the faithfulness of his church brings him such joy. It is the crowning jewel of his ministry to see his his followers, his disciples, his church being faithful in their calling. And then he gives them this encouragement, stand firm in the Lord. So what we're going to see is how all three of these sections in the passage we read flow from that verse, and they point back to that verse, stand firm in the Lord. But we're also going to see how this verse itself also comes in the context of the verses that come before it. You notice the very first word of the chapter, the very first word of the very first verse, therefore, therefore. Here's a a little Bible study tip. If you're studying your Bible, you come across the word therefore. You got to pause and you've got to ask yourself, what is this there for? (laughs) And you go back a couple verses and you'll figure it out. And that's what we do here. We look at this verse, therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm in the Lord. Why do we see that? Why is that there? Well, we go back a couple verses to chapter 3, verse 20, and we read, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to become like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So this, therefore, points us back to the the verses just prior to it where we see two things. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we await a Savior our Lord Jesus Christ. The command to stand firm in the Lord 
is rooted in the foundation of those two things. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we await the coming of our Savior, Christ the Lord. So our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, the things around us, the things where we live, those aren't the ultimate things, are they? That there's actually a higher reality that we belong to as the people of God. We are citizens of a higher kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, which is breaking into this world. And also, we don't, uh, we don't simply have the temporal things around us, the temporal reality around us, but we are actually awaiting the Savior our Lord Jesus Christ, to come back to this world and to make all things new. And it's on that basis, because of those two things, that Paul says we are to stand firm. Because our citizenship's in heaven and Christ is coming again, we are called to hold steady, to stay the course, to not give up, to not abandon our posts. Because we belong to a higher kingdom, and that kingdom and his king, its king, is coming into our world. And this is really important for us to see this morning, because when are we most tempted to leave our post? It's when we lose sight of the bigger picture, isn't it? When are we most tempted to, to give in to the things around us? It's when we lose sight of the, the larger picture of what God is doing. When we start looking at the panic around us or we start looking at the, the divisiveness around us and seeing all these people around us who are on edge and about to lose it, right? We may be tempted to join them if we don't have in sight the bigger picture. That our citizenship's in heaven, we belong to a higher kingdom, and our Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. If we don't have that in view, we might be tempted to give in to the similar thoughts of those around us. And we may be tempted to, to feel this sense of despair about our own lives or even have this sense of despair about our own church when we lose sight of what God is up to. But Paul says, don't give up hope. Don't abandon your post. He says, don't give in to the way the world sees things because your true citizenship is in heaven. And Christ is coming again. And then he says, when Christ comes back, he has this desire to be found standing firm. I have that desire as well. I hope you do too. That when Christ comes again, that he will find us standing firm in him at our post. So it's important for us to see that this command to stand firm is rooted in those verses that come before it, that they give us the foundation for why Paul says what he says to the church in this call to stand firm. But then the question becomes, how do we do that? Okay, we understand why to stand firm, the reason why we stand firm, but now how do we stand firm? And this is what we have in the remainder of the, the passage in verses 2 through 9. In the first section in verses 2 and 3, we read this. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And yes, I ask you also, my true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. See, Paul, as the pastor here, is addressing a very personal matter that's happening in his congregation. He's dealing with this 
kind of relational conflict that's, that's boiled up or bubbled up in the congregation between these two women, and he names them Euodia and Syntyche. Apparently, these two women had a disagreement in the church. We're not told what the disagreement is. Maybe they had uh, a struggle over how to cook the potluck for church that Sunday, or maybe they, they had some kind of conflict about the color of the carpet in the church, or, you know, those kinds of things. Maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's something more. But in any case, Paul names them. He calls them out, says, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And then he calls upon this unnamed true companion to help these women. He says to this person who's unnamed, come alongside these two women and help them to agree in the Lord. Why? Because they have labored side by side with me. They have been my, my, my co-workers, my yoke fellows, to use the old term. And they have labored with me in the gospel along with another man named Clement. And so Paul is calling this church to have this same mind amongst itself, right? He's telling us that the church that stands firm in the peace of Christ is a church that works out its differences. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been in a church that has had conflict. <laughs> no, just kidding. That was... That was as a joke. <laughs> uh, no, of course churches have conflict, don't they? Of course churches have infighting sometimes. Of course we have disagreements sometimes. But Paul says that we need to always come back to the center, which is Christ. Agree in the Lord, he says. Agree in the Lord. Notice what he's not saying. He's not saying you have to have uniformity. He's saying there, there is room for dissent. There is room for disagreement, sure. But at the end of the day, we have this unity in Christ. When we gather for worship, we gather in Christ. When we gather together to worship Christ, we put aside those differences and we have the same mind together. The church that stands firm in the peace of Christ is the church that works out its differences. And then the second section, verses 4 through 7, here Paul gives us a formula for receiving God's peace. In other words, maybe this will help Euodia and Syntyche to, to come together and to agree in the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Notice the emphasis he's placing on, on the rejoicing. He has to say it again because it's so critical and crucial to this church. Rejoice Again, I say, rejoice. Then he says, let your reasonableness or your gentleness or your moderation be known to everyone. In other words, don't be going off the rails. Don't have the reputation of, of being you know, unreasonable or, or excessive. And then he says in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So you see what he's saying here. He's taking rejoicing. He's adding in moderation or gentleness or reasonableness. And he's saying, put that together with prayer. And your anxieties 
your anxious thoughts and worries are eliminated and the peace of God comes to you. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I gotta say, sometimes in the season that we're in, in the, the pandemic, and you know, lots of churches are facing all kinds of different things, and we're all kind of in the same boat together uh, with with the struggles that we're all facing as churches and pastors. And some people have actually asked me whether I'm I'm worried about what's going to happen to our church. I'm, am I worried that this season is going to be too much for our church to bear? And I tell these people, no, I'm not worried. I'm not worried because. One, my citizenship is in heaven. And two, Christ is coming again. And so I rejoice daily in those things. And when I rejoice and these anxieties still come up, I give those over to God. Let your prayers and supplications and thanksgivings be made known to God. And the anxieties are handed over to God. But I also say to these people that I do worry that some in our church may forget that their true citizenship lies in heaven and that Christ is coming back. Coming back. And I, I worry that they may not be standing firm in the Lord. That's a, a real worry. But again, I pray about that. And I allow God to deal with that. And so he says, do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A peace that is beyond comprehension when we pray, when we pray and rejoice. And then this final section in verses 8 through 9. Verses 8 and 9, Paul here gives us a list of things that help to elevate our thoughts to think on the things of God. They elevate our thoughts to think on the things of God. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise— Think about these things. Think about these things. I love this, this part of the, the letter because it, it elevates our thoughts beyond the negativity, beyond the division, beyond the, the divisiveness of our day. And it elevates us to think the things of God. Again, keeping the big picture in mind, right? Our citizenship's in heaven and Christ is coming again. It's like what Paul says in the letter to the Colossians, set your minds on things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He's showing us how to elevate our thoughts, how to reorient our focus, how to not participate in the negativity and the division, how to not become fixated on the things that tear down and destroy, but to set our minds on things that are above these honorable, true, and pure, and just things, these things that are lovely, beautiful, commendable, the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. You notice how your mind just 
totally goes in a new direction when you think on those things. And you don't become saturated in all the stuff of culture that brings us down. And then verse 9, when you have learned, or what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So again, it all goes back to this concept of standing firm in the Lord, right? The church that stands firm in the peace of Christ is a church that agrees in the Lord together. They put aside their differences when they come to worship, and they worship in the Lord. They are a church that rejoices in the Lord. They're not anxious about these things around them, but they're offering these anxious thoughts to God in prayer and finding that God gives them his peace, his perfect peace, which is beyond all comprehension. We find that this is a church standing firm in the peace of Christ because it has elevated its thoughts, its thinking, the things of God. And the peace of God, the God of peace, will be with you. Will be with you. Just as the song that we sang earlier says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. But then the final verse, which really matches well with this passage, where our citizenship's in heaven and Christ is coming again. Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trumpet shall sound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Amen. It is well. It is well with my soul. And so, church, may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And may the blessing of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be with you and remain with you always. And may you allow the peace of Christ to rule in your hearts this week and always.